I mentioned last week and I wasn't able to fully cover, and I still won't cover it fully tonight because it's a strange little verse tucked away in here about, well, you'll see. Look at verse 18 of Acts 18. So Paul still remained a good while, still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and called and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. So I want to deal with this idea of Paul had taken a vow. He had taken a vow. What in the world is that about? Well, he had taken a Nazarite vow, more than likely. This is a vow that is seen in Numbers 6, and I say that more than likely that's the vow that he took because it doesn't specifically say, but it does say it had to do something with his hair. He cut his hair off. And that is the, the key indicator that this was a Nazarite vow. What is a Nazarite vow? A Jew would take a Nazarite vow for a specified period of time during which he or she would not cut his or her hair, drink wine, or eat anything that pertained to the fruit of the vine. Literally, not that they just wouldn't drink wine or drink grape juice. They wouldn't eat ingest anything from the seed to the skin is the wording in number six that came from the fruit of the vine nor would they touch a dead body uh, at, at the end of the vow he or she would shave his or her hair make specified offerings etc and there's some irony and paradox in the Nazarite vow uh it involved not drinking wine. We've seen in our studies before the day-to-day wine or juice that they use for daily intake did not have the high alcoholic content that our wine does today. Not, they did not drink this wine to get drunk, okay? Now, they had drink that they had for that specific reason. It's called strong drink in the Bible, especially in the old King James. You would see it as strong drink. This was what you drank to get drunk, strong drink. The Jews were always instructed to abstain from strong drink, but they, anytime you crack open a, a, a grape, it begins immediately to ferment. So you have a fermentation process at various stages. Their wine was not uh, highly alcoholic, but they, were, they would not drink this, this uh, wine or anything that came from the fruit of the vine. And, and so... Here you, and that's something they normally would do, right? But they, during the Nazarite vow, would not do that. Also, a typical Jewish woman did not cut her hair. They saw this as a shame uh, to cut her hair. Uh, yet at the end of the vow, she would shave all her hair off. So I'm saying there's some irony and some uh, paradox involved in this. Also, it was a shame for a man to have long hair. Paul would say that to his letter, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, yet he would let it grow long during his vow, and some took the vow for life. 
like Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. So again, irony and paradox, don't do this, and yet they would do it during the vow. Do this, and yet they would not do it during the vow. There were things they would do and things that they would not do. I, like I said, it, it opens a lot of questions, doesn't give us a lot of answers, but it was a vow that they t took. Now, here's what I would like to say about it. Here's a point we can definitely take from this. It was a vow that was not taken lightly. It was a vow that was taken with great thought and consecration and commitment. It was impossible to really take a Nazarite vow lightly. It was a consecration for a period of time for a specified purpose. Now, in January, we're entering our season of prayer and fasting. I see the Nazarite vow as something similar to that. It was a season of consecration for a purpose, for a reason. We're about to enter this season of fasting and prayer. And I don't want to torture this text too much. I probably already have, but I don't want to torture it too much. But let me say this. I, personally, I don't know about you, but I love to eat. I really like to eat. And, and there are seasons like Thanksgiving and Christmas that it's, a, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Just food all the time. And it's guilt-free pleasure. You just eat and eat and eat. And you're like, what's Christmas, you know? I think I'm going to eat again. Give me, yes, give me another piece of pie. It's just awesome, you know? And, and so I love to eat. But in a time of fasting, in a time of fasting, you, you, you push the plate away. You deny the flesh. You say, no, I am not going to eat. And, and we'll have the month uh, broken down into our different things that we fast. We will fast food for one of those weeks. We'll emphasize that. We'll fast social media in one of those weeks, which is like, eating to some of us, right? We love social media. So there, there'll be a week we don't eat. There'll be a week we don't tweet, right? <laughs> and and, and you, could, you could make the case that, you know, Jesus said go out into all the world and, and make disciples and we're soul winners. And one of the greatest ways that I know of to, to win people is to break bread with them, have them share a meal together, have a good time together. But in a week of prayer and fasting, I will, I, for, the, for the good of this vessel, I'll push aside that plate and I won't have a meal with even an unbeliever that I'm trying to win. Because for the good of this vessel in the long haul, I got to say no. I got to say no. You can, some people are social media evangelists, right? I'm, I'm not one of those, but there are people that their ministry is all about Facebook. I got a Facebook ministry. And that's fine and dandy, but when you're fasting social media or whatnot, it, it's, it's a season where even though I might influence somebody for good, for the good of this vessel, I'm pushing that away. And to me, that's the way a Nazarite vow was. There were good things that, that sometimes you would, you would push away for the, for the greater good, for a saying no and, and a saying yes to God, no to the flesh. So it, it, was, a, it was not taken lightly. For the good of the vessel. Now back to Paul. David Guzik says, Paul's performance of this vow shows that Jewish opposition to his preaching had not made him anti-Jewish. He never forgot that he 
was Jewish. His Messiah was Jewish. That Christianity is Jewish and that the Old Testament forms and rituals might still be used to good purpose. Apparently, though Paul was adamant that Jewish ceremonies and rituals must not be required of Gentiles, he saw nothing wrong with Jewish believers who wished to observe such ceremonies, presumably if their fulfillment in Jesus was also recognized. Now, William Barclay, another uh, uh, theologian, wrote that he suggested the vow was one of gratitude because of Paul's having survived Corinth. But perhaps, Guzik says, the intense worldliness of Corinth made Paul want to express his dedication and separation unto the Lord more than ever. I kind of like that. I kind of like the way he puts that because sometimes you just want to wash this world off of you. I, I talked to a guy uh, today, and he was talking about sometimes he just wanted to push his television away and not watch TV. And and not necessarily that, that he was watching anything bad. It's just sometimes this old world is just, yeah. I want to oh, lock myself away with my Jesus and just get washed of all the filth of this world. Perhaps that's what Paul was doing. Guzik also points out, by tradition, a Nazarite vow could only be fulfilled in Judea. Paul began this vow in Sincrea, not in Judea. Paul's adoption of the vow out of the bounds dictated by Jewish tradition could indicate a desire to practice a more purely biblical observance of some of these Jewish rituals. So while the vow is mentioned in there, and I don't have the answers for it, it is interesting, nonetheless, to take a look at this vow that Paul took while in Sincrea on his way uh, through Ephesus. All right, so let's jump into Acts 19 because we had already gone through the end of 18, but I wanted to touch base on the vow. Are you with me? This is when Paul begins his third missionary journey. Verse 1, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had uh, laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now, as I mentioned, this is not Paul's first visit to Ephesus. He was there for a short-term term uh, a short time in Acts 18 and now he's back Ephesus was a wealthy port city in modern day Turkey where the Kester River flowed into the Mediterranean it was a swampy area we can relate had bayous and swamps around but the central city was located on two big hills that served as a natural breezeway that took care of the mosquito problem from their swamps. You know, back in the day, before Central AC, 
they would build a house with a big breezeway in the middle and they'd have screens and they, the wind would blow or they'd open it up and the wind would blow and it, it would cool the house, but it also took care of mosquito issues where here they had a, a mosquito problem that was taken care of just by the geography of the land, this natural breezeway. The harbor, we know from history, would eventually be filled with silt and the Aegean shoreline would shift and move and make this unusable as a harbor. Eventually, the city would be abandoned. But when Paul went to Ephesus, it boasted a population of about 300,000 people. And it was the seat of the local Roman government, the Roman proconsul for all of Asia was in Ephesus. It was also the center of an ancient pagan cult. It's mentioned in Scripture. Uh, they they worshipped uh, because a meteorite they thought that came from Zeus had fallen, and it was also the center of worship for the huntress fertility goddess Artemis or Diana. Her temple was massive, and it was in uh, in Ephesus. It was about four times the size of the Parthenon. So if you've ever seen pictures of the Parthenon or if you've ever been to Nashville, Tennessee and been at the Parthenon in downtown Nashville, is four times... That size, it was massive, and they had uh, a thousand temple prostitutes at one time. This this worship of Artemis, and uh, there were uh, there was this was big business because people made pilgrimages there to worship Artemis. And so it says, while Apollos stayed on and ministered in Corinth, that Paul moved on and he came to Ephesus, and, and he looked for people with whom he shared common ground, and that would primarily be Jews or people who worshipped the. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would be including some uh, proselytes, some Gentiles who had crossed over. And, and he came across 12 followers of John the Baptist. And he, he, he just, it, it says that, that he found these disciples and he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we've never heard. He said, what baptism, then unto which baptism were you baptized? They said, John's. Now, this is all interesting on so many levels to me because there's something about them that makes them recognizable as having discipline in their lives. They're disciples. So there is a there is a indication that they are disciplined into some way of thinking. And he asked them about this, and they said, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. We were baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. Now, when he hears this, he doesn't wax nostalgic, at least from the scriptures that we have, and trying to give them the background on John the Baptist. In other words, he's not saying, well, John's cousin was Jesus, and I I've met Jesus and talked to him. You see, his mama was Mary, and she's cousins with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and uh, John's dad, Zachariah, had this son who's in temple ministering angel and, and blah, blah. He, he didn't get into the, the details, the minutia, you could say, of John's baptism, John's birth, and his connection, which is the way I roll. I, I like to, you know, six degrees. Like, I like to cover those six degrees, like, and, you, and then when I'm done with my soliloquy, it's like, and that's how I'm connected to Kevin Bacon. 
You know, that's like I'm, I'm trying to make all those connections. John, uh, Paul doesn't make all those connections. He just says, oh, tell me about it. Oh, I see. Well, John preached about this one that would come after him, right? So he kind of cuts to the chase. He, he says this in, in effect. He says, well, that's cool, but there's more. I'm glad you've come this far, but you need to follow me further because there's more for you. That's awesome, but let me tie the missing piece to to where you are right now. That one that you are following spoke of another, and I'm the follower of the other. Let, Let me introduce you to him. And I love this because this is such a soul winning 101. Uh, illustration right here, right before our eyes. It really happened, but it, it shows us the way a master soul winner works. He, he understands where they are, understands where they need to go, and he finds a way to communicate that to them. And I love the idea that he wasn't content to let them stay just disciples of John the Baptist. He didn't say, that's great. That is awesome, cool. He's he's like, follow me. Let me show you the rest of this story. Let me show you how this plays out. He didn't leave them outside of Christ. He didn't leave them outside of the waters of water baptism or outside of the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking with tongues. He pulled them along and said, there is more for you. Now, without... Again, torturing the text, I would say also for us, there are people out here that they've only come so far, but there's more for them. There's further for them to go. I don't want to bash what they've already experienced. I certainly wouldn't do that. But I will say that's great. That's wonderful. But let me show you a few other things. We saw this in Acts 18 with Aquila and Priscilla dealing with Apollos. Apollos was mighty in the Scripture, but he didn't have it all together. And Aquila and Priscilla brought to him the word of God and explained it to him in a more mature way, opened up new avenues of thinking to the great Apollos and he became this powerful minister, this team member of Paul's in in reaching Asia and reaching Phrygia and Galatia with the gospel. So, So here we see this again. He now finds some followers of John the Baptist and he begins to find this common ground, this common ground. I love the fact that people did this for me. People didn't leave me where I was and say, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. They found common ground, led me to the ground that we didn't have in common, and that became holy ground for me. You know what I'm saying? They brought me to a place, they met me where I was and brought me to a place I needed to go. It was sacred. And some will resist that, of course, but not all. These 12 men complied and made the trip. And the church at Ephesus started with them. Primarily started with them. Now I want to take a look at this from from the letter that Paul would later write to the church at Ephesus. And I want to look at Ephesians 1 and I want to start with verse 4. This is what's so cool. In the book of Acts, you can go to Acts 19. We're seeing the beginning of the church at Ephesus. But we can also go to the letter written to the church at Ephesus. Get insight. That same group of people will be mentioned in Corinthians, will be mentioned in some other 
letters that Paul wrote to other churches. And then we can go to the book of Revelation where Jesus gives John a message for the church at Ephesus. So, so it's not just what happened in Acts 19. There is a bigger story at play here. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him. So now Paul's writing back to this church that was established here in Acts 19. We saw what that looked like. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now listen, these are deep thoughts. These are heavy concepts. We, we went through the book of Ephesians and Expedition Early Church. This is heavy stuff. And, and I'm the guy that's constantly asking, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Listen to this, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, did not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. He goes on and on, on and on and on. My question is, those are deep thoughts and you can get online, you can watch videos, you can listen to audios and podcasts, and, and, and you can dive into what does it mean to be chosen, predestined, uh, without blame, wholly adopted, pre, uh, accepted in the beloved, redeemed, having received an inheritance, uh, to, to have trusted in Christ after one has heard the word, the gospel, having believed, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the redemption of the purchased possession. What does all of this look like? I'll tell you where it started. And I'll tell you what it looked like when it began. Acts 19, 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized. That's water baptized. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with other tongues and prophesied. That's what that all started out. That's what it looked like right there. Chosen without blame, holy, adopted, predestined, accepted in the beloved. It all looked like what we saw in Acts 19 because Paul's writing back to them. So the chosen believed on Christ. The chosen believed in the name of the Lord Jesus, were baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke with tongues. Those without blame believed on Christ Jesus. 
were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking with tongues. The holy, adopted, predestined, accepted, all, all of the above. It all started out just like we see it. Vivid in color right before our eyes in Acts chapter 19. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? And really since Ephesus was the mother church for the seven churches of Asia Minor that are mentioned in Revelation, it only makes sense that this same pattern prevailed through all of those churches because indeed that is the pattern for the church. Later the great apostle John would be the presiding bishop over these churches and would base out of Ephesus. And so we understand that his influence went deep into the second and third centuries. And so we see the same pattern in the early years of the church into the second and even into the third centuries. And it was later that, you know, the traditions of men took over and there was a lot of corruption that happened in doctrine and preaching and teaching in the scripture. So let's look at verse 8. We'll cover some more. Let me say this real quick. These people in Acts 19 stepped up to a level of position in Christ that they didn't fully understand. In other words, they were born again. They had a place. They were seated in heavenly places far above all principality and power. They had authority, man. They, there was, they had the word of God. They had the name of Jesus, the blood of Christ, the faith in the name. There was positionally, they were powerful people, but they didn't understand it. They didn't fully walk in it and appreciate it. And, and we'll, next week, we'll, we'll look into a little bit deeper about uh, how Paul tried to get them to understand where they stood positionally in Christ so they could experience, their experience did not equal their position. And he was trying to get their experience to, to match their position in Christ. And we'll look at that next week. So let's go to verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So look at this. He, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly. But the wording there is freedom of speech. He, he was not withstood. He spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading. Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Notice he doesn't say that Paul proclaimed. It doesn't say he pronounced. It says that he reasoned and persuaded concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He used what the Greeks would refer to as dialogue. He dialogued. This was a technique for debate and discussion and learning. And it's where you not only speak, but you listen. He not only spoke, he listened. Again, this is Soul Winning 101 right here. So often we just want to talk and tell and preach and proclaim. But if you want to be an effective soul winner, you've got to learn to listen. 
I, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in Pentecostal church, and, uh, you know, I found some videos. Valerie pulled out some videos from our home church from the 90s, and, and we were, you know, fresh and back and uh, loving it. And so I, we were watching these videos from 1992 and 1993. We're kind of going through there, and we're like, look at that. Man, I hadn't seen them in forever. And, and, and the video quality is horrific, you know, like pixelated and terrible. And, and you know, it's that, that you, I know what camera is, that big old giant shoulder mount, not because it was a TV camera. Like it was the home camera, and it was that big old shoulder mount thing. You could see them trying to zoom in, so it was like, and then they slowly pan, and we've been watching these videos, and uh, we had a blowout service. We were watching where we had a blowout service, like the song service went crazy. Next thing I knew, people were out in the aisles dancing and running and jumping and praying for people, and it was a runaway. It was a blowout, and, and it was really cool. It was awesome. We've had some of those here at Lightpool. I'd love to have some more of those, too, where the Spirit of God just breaks out, and uh, it's back in the day when, when you know, you'd go home as a kid. I'd go home and I'd say, man, you know, church is really good tonight. There was no preaching. Nobody preached. It was awesome church, you know, which is such a slam on the preacher, right? And now I am one. Man, I wish it was so good that there was no preaching. And, you know, we understand you've got to have the preaching of the word. But sometimes the presence of God would just break out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just, it just kind of broke out. And it depends on your background. I ended up working in Maryland while a, I mean, apostolic Pentecostal to the core, still am, but, but when I was in Maryland, I worked for an Episcopal church. I was on staff. I was hired to work in an Episcopal church. The Episcopal church, the way they explained it to me, they were like, Donovan, it's as Catholic as you can get without being Catholic, and we know that's an offense to Catholics when we say that, but we're just saying the, the Episcopal Church was in the Anglican Communion. It was part of the Church of England. And when Henry VIII wouldn't be granted a divorce, he decided to just, like, start his own church. And all he knew was Roman Catholicism, and so he started Roman Catholicism in England and called it the Anglican Communion or the Anglican Church. And the Episcopal Church that I was with was in the Anglican Communion. So it was high church. And they hired me because they were trying to get a more contemporary they were trying to lower church, so they brought me in. And so they, they brought me in and, and hired me to introduce them to new ways to worship. It was, it was an, a really incredible story. But what I'm saying is this. I had influence in that church. Now, they told me what I could and could not do. And, and I tried to obey everything they said, but nevertheless, I had influence. We had people come over to our church that we were planting while I was on staff there. So I would leave there at about 9.45 or 9.50 in the morning, drive to our church, and there were some that would come from the Episcopals over to ours. And some of those people got the Holy Ghost, and God did incredible things. They were speaking in tongues, and they weren't supposed to do that. It just, they came over, and, and, and that's what happened. But, but here's what happened. When I was working with the Episcopals, it was, there was a dialogue. I, I didn't go into the Episcopal church saying, now let me tell you the way it is. I would say, now how do y'all do that and why? Oh, well, this is why we do that, Donovan. I had many long discussions with my priest who was a Yale graduate. He was a very smart guy. 
And he was, this is why we do this. And he'd pull out books and show me. And then he would say, now, why do you do what you do? Well, let me show you why, Mark. This is why we do what we do. This is how we do what we do. And I would explain to him my point of view because that dialogue was critical in our relationship. And if I was going to influence him, I had to hear his side. And when Paul was winning souls in Ephesus, he was in the synagogue saying, now tell me your point of view on the Messiah that is to come. And now let me tell you about this Jesus and why I say he is the Messiah. So there was this dialogue, this, this give and take. And, and we want so, sometimes just to be the teller. You know how bank tellers used to, used to wear that green cap? It was, you know, like one of those didn't have a top. It had that green to prevent glare, a visor like that. That's what tellers wore. You know, and back in the day, they, they wore those sleeve things, those little ribbons on their sleeves, and there was the, the bank teller. We want to tell people. We want to be the teller. This is what you got to do, and this is what you got to do, and this is what you got to do, and this. And we never take the time to find out where they are. Gee, when, when Paul first went to Ephesus, he found the disciples of John. He said, um, what's different about you? What makes you tick? What baptism were you baptized into? It was a dialogue. Everybody say dialogue. It's so important that we have give and take and build bridges. Everybody say build bridges. You find that common ground and you dance on it for a little bit and then you say, now I've got some ground you're not standing on. It's an uncommon ground. Come over here a little bit and watch what God does. Now verse 9, but when some were hard, and I would say, You know, Life Point, let, let me just say this. The, the DNA, so some, some of you need to go through Discover Life and pick up some of the DNA of Life Point and why we do what we do. There's a method to the madness. We're about Jesus' people mission. Jesus' first people matter. We're on a mission to get Jesus to people. That's what we do. That's why we exist. And, and so, so I'll have people come from high church, and, and I mean even non-Catholic situations, but high church church, you know, like like formal church, formal church, and, and there's been such a disconnect with the institutional church, even spirit-filled churches, are, there's a certain amount of institutionalization and sterilization that can take place, can I get an amen, and that sterile environment, just that formal stuffiness has, has been, it's been a, it's pushed people away. We're not trying to push people away. We're trying to get people in. So sometimes I wear tennis shoes on this plat. We I call it a stage, but the, in church we call it a platform. I wear tennis shoes on a platform, which is just a no-no. You can't do that. You're supposed to. And I, I make jokes about it. We wear we you know I wear my best to the house of God. And so when I'm in a suit, you know I've told you I've joked about it, I'm in a suit and tie. And they'll say, oh, you're dressed up today. Oh, I, bring, I believe in wearing my best to the house. I'm really kind of joking a little bit because, you know, somebody's best might not be a suit and tie. And, and what does it mean I'm going to bring wear my best to, the, to, the, to this building? We were a church before we had a building. You know what I mean? When we gathered in my living room, it was still church. And I guarantee you I wasn't wearing a suit and tie in my living room for church. What am I saying? 
I'm just saying we, we have tried to pull down barriers and build bridges with people. Even if it's the way we look or the way we present, we're not going to compromise our standard and, 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 and sin, you know, like we're not going to pull out Mogan David and, and Mad Dog 2020 up here on the stage to try to relate to people. That's not what we're going to do at all. But we are going to do everything we can to find some common ground so we can say, I got some other truth that you need to hear. I'm telling you this, Jesus has more for you. Amen. Amen. That's soul winning. That's soul winning. You've got to find the common ground. Man, when I was working with those Episcopals, it was hilarious some of the services that I was in. Unbelievable just the, 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 the songs we sang. We sang Teach Your Children Well by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in the main worship sanctuary in the Episcopal service that I was part of. Now, that wasn't my doing. That's what they chose to do. Teach your children well. There's Father's hell. We'll slowly go by. I, listen, I, I, I was a music guy. I wasn't real familiar. That was before my era. But I learned that song because that's what they did. They're like, on this Sunday, we do teach your children. I was with them almost four years. We did that song like at least three times. I was, like, I was trying to find the common ground. I'm like, well, okay, I'm musical. It's Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, you know, like I'm not used to this. But at the same time, they would sing Latin. They did a song called Sanctus during communion. And so they would do, you know, it was like Sanctus, Sanctus, just like real, you know, Gregorian type. And uh, the priest was like, I don't really like that song. We're tired of that. We've done that for, you know, like 73 years now. We're looking for a new song. And I said, uh, you know, and I taught him, uh, holy, oh, holy, holy, which was like newer back then. Sanctus means holy. And so I brought holy, 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 you know, holy is the Lord. I'm playing guitar. And they're like, that's great. And they, they did it every Sunday from the time I taught it to them for the next three years. Probably still doing it today. Probably will do it for the next 75 years. But it was like I'm just trying to find the common ground, just trying to find. So I'm, we're going to do teach your children well. But we're going to do holy, holy, holy. And I watched as people, as we were, I was in the back of the audience but because it's where the band was. And I remember watching. They told me, do not make, don't, don't encourage them to raise their hands. We don't do that. We're Episcopals. Okay. So we start singing holy, holy, and inevitably. Oh, man, presence of God would move people's hands, somebody's hands would go up. <laughs> I'd be like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. But we were trying to find common ground. Soul winning, amen? All right, we're coming in for a landing here. And, and Huh? Oh, thank you, my son in love. And when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way, before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, he, he preached before with no opposition. He had freedom of speech. Now, there are some hard hearts that are not believing and speaking evil. They're working against him. And so he departs, withdrew the disciples, 
and moves to a school. He rented a school, which is something that we have done before in our church in Maryland. We rented a school. We've never done it here in Prairieville, but we've rented other facilities and places. So he rents the school of Tyrannus. And verse 10, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even bandanas, I'm sorry, handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, he plotted along here for two whole years. Two years in a rented school, preaching and teaching, just cost two years. And his influence, it said, was felt throughout all of Asia to Jews and to Greeks. This man is making an impact. But it's not just him. It's not just his dialogue expertise. There was also this phenomenon of unusual miracles, and it was miracles that had to do with handkerchiefs and aprons. Now, how is this for a tease for next week? Miracles through handkerchiefs and aprons. The apron and handkerchief miracle ministry. That's one you don't hear of very often, right? Well, they're over our apron ministry. Oh, you work in the kitchen. Oh, no. No, we have miracle aprons. We have miracle handkerchiefs. This hanky right here. You just take my hanky and you go lay it on that sick person and watch what happens. It's the apron and handkerchief ministry. Power of miracles and evil spirits. Think about it. Addictions and, and perversities and, and possessions and, and sicknesses. Healings took place because of aprons and handkerchiefs. And even the writer calls this unusual miracles. God worked. I think all miracles are unusual, but this says God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And it has to do with handkerchiefs and aprons. So next week we'll jump into that. We'll deal a little bit about trying to reconcile their position with their experience in Christ. And then we'll look at this phenomenon of unusual miracles, handkerchiefs, and aprons, and the miracles that took place. And I'll tell you this, God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what those people needed. He knew the spirits and principalities that were hovering and manip manipulating the people of Ephesus, and he knew exactly what they needed to get deliverance and to get healed from that influence and get freedom. And God knows exactly what's going on here in Prairieville. He knows exactly what's going on in your family, and he has a prescription already written out to get that deliverance to you and to yours and those that you love. Amen? Stand with me right now. We serve a great and a powerful God. I hope you passed out some of these cards. It's just a little card. I was talking to somebody tonight. Drew. I was talking to Drew. Drew told me he passed out some cards at, at his job, and he found one of them in the trash can, and it hurt his feelings. 
And he went and he got it out of the trash can. He kind of wiped it off and he wanted to reuse it. I'm like, that's my boy right there. Yeah, that's my boy right there. I love it. Not only is he passing them out, but when it's rejected, he, he cleans it off and like he recycles, right? He recycles it. I love that. My barista and her five children didn't make it this Sunday, but she told me yesterday, Alexander was with me. Uh, he met her and she said, we're going to be there this Sunday. I hope you're passing out those cards. There are people. We got to build some bridges, church. We got to roll up our sleeves, put on our mud boots. We got to get out here and get amongst the people and let Jesus do what he wants to do. He wants to heal people, deliver people, set them free, see them seated together with him in heavenly places far above all principality and power. He's wanting to do exceeding abundantly above all that they can ask or think according to the power that works in them. God wants to do amazing things and he wants to use this church to get it done. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your wonderful, wonderful word, God. These stories tucked away in this amazing historical book of Acts. These letters to the churches throughout the epistles, Lord. The Ephesians, the Corinthians, the Philippians, God. This, this revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of our Bible, Lord. Thank you so much for putting these stories in here, God. This is the word of life. This brings faith to us. This is the measure of faith. We fill up on it, God. We're encouraged by it, Father. We, we learn from it, God. We know our rights and privileges, and we know your provisions, God. And we reach up in faith and grab them, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would understand this is bigger than us. This is bigger than just our getting together at 15050 Daigle Road. This is providential. This is the hand of the Lord that has moved upon us and put us in the kingdom for such a time as this. A prophetic period of time, a historical era, and a moment in that era, you have placed us here with purpose. Hallelujah. We give you praise for it right now in Jesus' name. Can you lift your hands to him? Thank you, Jesus.